several weeks ago, we had Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover feast, and I wasn't able to preach that Acts 2 text like I wanted to then, so I'm going to do it now. You can think about it and imagine when the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 arrived, the disciples were in the upper room and they're just, they're waiting. They know the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out, but I'm sure they're brokenhearted about what's happened. And to, to gather what's happening here, you need to get the big picture of what's going on from the Old Testament. Israel had three major feasts. And in the mind of the Jew, each feast had three distinct meanings or associations. A natural one, so what does that mean? Well, related to a feast or a harvest. A a historical one related to something like the Exodus that happened in the history of Israel. And a prophetic meaning of the feast, something that they were looking for God to do in the future. So a natural meaning, a historical meaning, and a prophetic meaning for all three of these major feasts. Now, the first major feast was Passover. Well, the natural meaning was celebrating the early harvest that came in. The historical meaning, as you know, is when they were taken out of Egypt and God told them to take the lamb's blood and put it over their doorposts and the spirit of death would pass them by. So they were delivered by the blood of the Lamb. And the prophetic is they're looking for a final and future deliverance, which came through the Lamb of God, who came and he died for us. Passover, second feast. Pentecost, called the Feast of Weeks. Pentecost, because it was seven weeks, 50 days after Passover. Okay? Therefore, the Greeks called it Pentecost, 50 days. Now, the natural meaning was the gathering in of the giant grain harvest. The historical meaning was 50 days after the Passover, Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law from God and to give the law to the people. The prophetic is the day that the Spirit of God was given so that the law could now no longer be written on just tablets, but it would be written upon the heart by the Holy Spirit. Now, the last major feast that you need to understand before we get into this text is tabernacles or booths, the third major one. The natural celebration was the fruit harvest. The historical meaning was the journeying in the desert, in the wilderness. And the prophetic is when Christ comes again. And he takes his people who have been journeying in the wilderness of this world to himself and restores this world to the way it once was. Now, you need to get that before you can get Pentecost. Passover is now finished. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, has been killed. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And before he ascends, he commands his disciples Don't leave Jerusalem, for God's Spirit was coming. So now we see the disciples 50 days later, during Pentecost, waiting, praying for the promise of God. So if you would, just read with me. Acts chapter 2, 
feast of Pentecost, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Let's pray for our time. God, I thank you for Passover, the Lamb of God, Christ, the fulfillment of that, our once for all Lamb that was offered for the forgiveness of our sin. We thank you, God, for the picture of the next feast, which is Pentecost, the law being given from the mountain above, and Christ now pouring out the Holy Spirit so that we might truly be able with grace and freedom to obey that law. And we thank you for tabernacles because we realize that we live in the wilderness of a broken and cursed world, and we long for the Messiah to come back and to restore it with a cleansing and purifying fire. Lord, but we thank you for the Spirit, and we want to walk in the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. And today I pray that you would give us eyes to hear or to see and ears to hear what your Word is saying to us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 333, there was a vibrant church in Persia. But there was a great persecution that broke out because these Christians would not worship the sun and they would not worship the Persian king. And so the Persian king gathered up the bishop of the church there in Persia. His name was Simeon. And he gathered up the hundred or so Christian leaders and elders. And he told Simeon, he said, I'm going to give you one day to renounce your position. And if you don't, then you will all die. Simeon refused to worship him, and he certainly refused to worship the sun. So the following two days later, that is, he began to execute the hundred elders one by one in front of Simeon, hoping that Simeon would renounce his faith and come to worship the king as God. Now, Simeon refused, and he was executed with a hundred elders. Now you say, why do you tell us that story? Well, because when I read that, the question I had was 300 years after the cross, 
how was there a hundred elders and a bishop and a strong church in Persia? And the answer is because what happens here in Acts 2 with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost. You see, in the Feast of Pentecost, Jews and Gentile converts have come from all around the world to participate in the feast and in the worship. And in an upper room, the Holy Spirit is being poured out, is filling the disciples, and huge crowds gather. And these simple disciples were able to proclaim the gospel in everybody's native language. And the response they had when they heard the gospel preached to them, the greatness of God was, how can this be? Now notice... The Spirit is moving in amazing ways. He's filling the believers with new power, ability to speak other languages. But also notice, it's not just random acts of power. It's not just meaningless words. It's not just emotion and noise that's going on here. His work is full of purpose and meaning. He gave them real words and utterances about the mightiness of their God. They are testifying to the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus the Messiah in the language of the people who were there. And they were from all over the known world. Now, I want to ask you, how do we judge? How do you judge the work of the Spirit in your emotions, in your desires, in your affections, in your heart, in our church. Well, the church has from one extreme to the other gone. Different cultures take different stances. So the African brother years ago approached me and he said, Ah, pastor, the worship has no spirit in it. Nobody's dancing. Nobody's shouting hallelujah. Nobody's got their hands hands in the air. There's no spirit in your worship. The Dutch brother comes up to me and he says, Pastor, we show no emotion because we want you to know that we give all of our heart and our attention to God and God alone. Different cultures have different perspectives, don't they? So there have been times and places that the church has looked at the highest emotions, the strongest experiences as the only true sign of real faith. But the source behind those emotions and the experience really is never questioned. Have you had those emotions? Have you had those experiences? Christians then feel that if they are not raised at all times with zeal and constant talk of Jesus, that they are not full of the Spirit, maybe not even believers. But on the other hand, the church and certain cultures have swung in the other way, where they have nothing but suspicion for any display of excitement or emotion, partly because they've seen people who are red-hot for Jesus quickly become ice-cold. So the work of Christ and His Spirit has little to do there with the emotion and all to do in their minds with the will, with the mind, with knowledge, with understanding. Emotion can't be trusted. Knowledge can. 
And the result is any display of emotion in those cultures and in those times is avoided like the plague. The truth is, my friends, the work of the Spirit brings both light and heat. The Puritans would say you have to have both. Light of the knowledge of God as you begin to know God more through the work of the Spirit, but also a heat as He is warming your heart and changing your desires so that you want to worship Him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. So here's the main idea today. The work of the Spirit brings light and heat in the life of God's people. It's not one, it's not the other. When the Holy Spirit is working, it's both. There's two things we want to see about this text. First, the Spirit came with power. Verses 1 and 2. Let's read that once more together. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Pentecost was happening The streets would be full of people from all the world. And the disciples, maybe the 120 that's talked about in Acts 1, maybe less, were all together in an upper room waiting, expecting the Holy Spirit to be poured out on them. Doing just what Jesus had told them to do. Now, there's lots of similarities here between Moses, who went on the mountain and received the law, and then he gave it to his people. At the first Pentecost, Christ, who dies, and he goes and ascends up into heaven, and now his people are here, and they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. Do you see how those two are the same? Pentecost, beginning and fulfilled here. Now notice what happens. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven. Jesus had just ascended into heaven And suddenly, as they awaited abruptly, they hear a sound from heaven. Notice the sound. It's like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were staying. So the sound was like a terrible wind or like a cyclone that filled the entire house. You can almost picture it. If you've ever been in an earthquake or a cyclone, the roaring is penetrating to your eardrums, and it feels like to your very soul. But it didn't just come with sound. They also saw something. Notice, there appeared on them tongues as if of fire, which divided amongst them and rested on each one of them. Moses, the giver of the law, describes God like this. He's a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4.24 God dwelt with his people in the wilderness, in the cloud of the day, in a pillar of fire by night. God appeared to Moses like a burning bush in Exodus 3. And when Jesus came on the scene as the Messiah, John the Baptist says in Luke 3, he will baptize his people with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And when Jesus appears to them in Acts 1, he says, don't depart. I'm about to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now that's what's happening. And the Holy Spirit now divides and he rests on each one of them. And the appearance is as a tongue of fire. In other words, like fire in its brightness, in its light, in its glory, but with no burning. 
Why tongues? Because it's Pentecost, the Feast of the Harvest. And the Lamb of God was about to start drawing the nations into Himself. The harvest was coming, and He would do it through giving the disciples tongues. The ability to actually speak the language of all the people who were there. And therefore, the Holy Spirit rested upon them like tongues of fire. Makes sense. I can remember years ago when I was taking a, in Asia, I was taking a 14-hour car trip across Asia, and I had two missionaries with me. And almost immediately I could tell that they wanted to interview me for something. They began to ask me about my conversion experience. They began to ask me about my views of the Holy Spirit. And then they just came out and said it. And they said, Rusty, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? I was a very young believer. And I said, I think so. What does that mean? And they looked at me and they said, when you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, you will speak in tongues. Do you do that? I said, no. And they said, well, then you're not baptized of the Holy Spirit. Now, only Dr. Seuss could describe how I felt in that car. And I want to quote the good doctor in his book, The Sneetches. This is what he says. Now, the star-bellied Sneetches had bellies with stars. The plain-bellied Sneetches had none upon theirs. The star-bellied Sneetches would brag we're the best Sneetches on the beaches... And we will have nothing to do with you plain belly sort. I felt like a plain belly sort of sneech. You know, maybe you can feel confused about being filled with the Holy Spirit. You can have the Spirit. Let me just say a few things that, that might help your confusion. You can have the Spirit and still be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here, Luke uses a particular Greek word that shows it's not a long-term feeling, but it's something that God is coming upon them with for a particular work. And guess what? Peter receives the Spirit here, but he's filled with the Spirit again and again in the book of Acts. Acts 4.8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Acts 4.31, And when they had prayed, the place which they were gathered shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 13.52 And the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter received the Spirit, but is repeatedly filled again and again when he is going to speak in other languages, preach the gospel, heal. He's filled with the Holy Spirit for power, for a particular purpose of showing the greatness of Christ. Now, my friends, when you come to Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. And now you're commanded to walk in, to be led by, to live by the Spirit. And the Spirit will come upon you and fill you in particular times, in particular seasons, to glorify uniquely Jesus Christ. Now, I want to just say one other word before we move on. He deals with you in grace as you deal with Him in obedience. He deals with you in grace as you deal with Him in obedience. Often we have quenched His presence in our lives by ignoring His work and His voice or by turning against Him in sin. And the truth is, we cannot lose His presence, but we can lose His comfort, can't we? 
The truth is, he blesses obedience with incredible graces. Through the Spirit, these two things run together and are interwoven. The Spirit's graces, pleasures, comforts, and our obedience to Christ. Jesus is our great benefactor, and he is our Lord to be obeyed at the same time. The more we know, follow, and obey our Savior, the more His Spirit works like a benefactor in your life, transforming you, filling our lives with grace and the delights of knowing God. Point two. So what purpose did the Spirit have here in filling them? Let's move from the power of the Spirit to the purpose of the Spirit. Verses 5 and 6. Let's just read that together in your Bibles. Verses 5 and 6. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Notice, in Jerusalem were devout men, Jews and Gentile converts who had become part of the covenant from all over the known world. And at the sound of these mighty winds, they heard it, a crowd begins to gather. Now here's why the Holy Spirit came upon them like tongues of fire. They begin to speak in the language of the people that are there. Now there's a lot going on here. You you need to understand that in Genesis, one of the results of man's sin is separation, division from God. That people are divided there, the story of Babel, into languages and cultures. And now, as the Spirit is poured out into the lives of people, He's restoring unity. The gospel is for every nation, which is there, to bring a great harvest of one people, one spirit, one baptism, one faith. That is why God invented Pentecost and brought all the nations to one place and gave the believers the ability to speak to them. Now, they have three questions. Notice those questions. First, are these not Galileans? <laughs> and that would, what they're saying is Galilee was known to be a real redneck area. Okay? Galilee was known to be kind of backwoods. And they're saying, how are these men so learned? Are they not from Galilee? Second question. How is it that each hears in his own language? In other words, how do they know what languages to speak? No one is wearing a sign that says, I'm an Egyptian Jew. I'm a Persian Jew. I speak Egyptian. But the Spirit is not just giving them the ability just to speak language, but the exact languages of everybody who's present. And they're wondering, how do they know what languages to speak? Third question, what does this mean, they say? Just after Jesus the Messiah at Passover, the Lamb of God was crucified, dead, buried, risen, and ascended. Now at Pentecost, the Spirit of God is being poured out in supernatural ways on his followers. And they're saying, what does this mean? Well, Peter preaches right after that. And he tells them, he quotes Joel 2.28, I will pour out my spirit on their flesh. 
But the answer is verse 11. Look with me in verse 11. We hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. The Spirit's power has a purpose. You've got to get that. These words had meaning to testify to the mighty works of God, which I presume to mean the greatness of what He's just done in the Messiah. That's what's happening. I think they're preaching the gospel to these people through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what is the meaning of the work of the Holy Spirit? It is always showing the greatness of Jesus Christ. It did it there, and it does it today. Now how do you discern the Spirit? How do you discern the Spirit? When I was in Cambodia several years ago, I was talking to a a young group of American girls, and they were Christians, and they were so excited. And I said, girls, tell me what you're excited about. And they said, oh my gosh, there is an amazing movement of the Holy Spirit in Los Angeles. I said, tell me about it. And they said, we are having nighttime worship, and Justin Bieber is on the front row. The Holy Spirit is moving. Well, maybe. Because famous people come to church doesn't mean the Spirit is working. Could. Because people get emotional doesn't mean the Spirit is working. But let me flip that. Because people don't show emotion does not mean the Spirit is not working. Here is one great way of discerning the Spirit of God's work. His work always reveals the greatness of God. It always displays the glory of Christ. John 16, 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Listen, the work of the Spirit is not random. It's not meaningless. It's not just emotion. His work is always full of purpose to show the greatness of Christ, to magnify it. To the believer, the result is growth in knowing God more, loving Him more, and enjoying Him more. But for the world, He works as well. Listen, John 16, 9. He convicts the world of sin in their lives, their need of righteousness before God, and the judgment of God that is coming to show them their need of forgiveness and point them again towards Christ. The Spirit takes people to the Passover cross then to the filling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now, two things. As a believer, is your emotion from the Holy Spirit? Well, if it flows from experiencing Christ and you are growing and you're knowing, you're loving, you're enjoying of Christ, and it's pointing you in that direction, then yes, it is. As a non-Christian, is your emotion from the Holy Spirit? Well, if it produces in you a conviction about how you're living, a sober awareness that one day your life will be judged by God and reveals how beautiful Jesus is for loving you enough to be the Lamb's sacrifice to take away your sins and that by faith you can be made perfectly righteous, then yes, it is. 
how do we think and live this? How do you take this from your head to your heart? You say, okay, Rusty, I'm, I'm understanding what you're saying. Just one thing we'll close with. At Pentecost, the law, law gives way to spirit. At Pentecost, law gives way to spirit. Okay? I'm going to explain that. Moses, at the first Pentecost, went on the mountain. He received the law. He gave it to his people. Jesus rose. He went into heaven. He ascended. And he gave the spirit to us, his people. The lamb was slain, and Christ has fulfilled the law. As the first Pentecost was the giving of the law, God's word, now the Holy Spirit has been given to dwell in you as the fulfillment of that. Okay? What about the law and the spirit then? Are you saying law has no role in my life anymore? No, not at all. We are free from its requirements of perfect obedience to be saved because Jesus Christ met those requirements of perfect obedience so you could be saved. But we're not free from its guidance and directions on how to live a life. We're free from its curses when we fail, but we're not free from its commands about God's will. It will always be good in God's will for us in how we live in this world. And now the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to obey God and rest in His grace when we fail. Now, second thing. Last. This is incredibly important when you realize that we are very much like Israel after Pentecost. Living in the wilderness of this world, waiting for deliverance. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. Waiting for tabernacles is where we are. Our home is not in this world any more than Israel's home was in the wilderness. But in the same way God's presence led them as a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day, so His Holy Spirit guides and leads you in the wilderness that we live in of this world. Do you see that? And now we are waiting and expecting Christ to come again. Lastly, if you are a believer, Christ has fulfilled all three feasts for you. Pentecost, Passover, Tabernacles. Passover for my sins. The Lamb of God has been shed for you by faith. You are made righteous. Pentecost to fill me with His Holy Spirit so I don't have to always be looking at God to know what He thinks or looking at the law to know what God thinks of me. I've got the Spirit and tabernacle, the work of God is not finished. To remember, we live in the wilderness and we long for eternal rest in God's presence in heaven. This is our hope. A day when the Spirit's work in me will be finished. That I see Christ face to face and are transformed. And in the same way Israel was brought into the promised land, so we will be brought out of the wilderness of this world into heaven with our great Messiah and Savior, Christ, leading the way. Father, I just, I just praise you and I thank you for the three great feasts which are all fulfilled in Jesus. Lord, I thank you for Passover, the picture of the Lamb, the blood which passes the spirit of death over. And by faith, you have forgiven us because you've sent the Lamb to die for us. Fifty days after that death, Pentecost, praise you, Lord, 
the Holy Spirit was poured out. Lord, the Spirit who dwells in us, writing the law upon our heart, the Holy Spirit that then gives us ability to fulfill and live by your will. Lord, and now, thank you for the harvest in the nations. And just like the grain harvest came in there in Pentecost, Lord, and they celebrated it, so your Holy Spirit is drawing the nations through missions around the world. Yet we know we live, O oh Lord, in the desert, in the wilderness, and we long for our Savior to come again to bring us into the promised land of heaven. So, Lord, we praise you for what you're doing, but we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.